everybody. How are we all doing? I'm Michael. I'm joined by Alex, as always. How's it going? And this is Fallen Through Plot Holes, a podcast about video games and plot lines and how they have a tendency to go off the rails. I totally forgot the intro right when we started. <laughs> it's only, it's not like I've we've been doing this for well over a year at this point. It's great. No, no. Whole new not experience. Whole new experience. Ah, uh, yes. Alex, how are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. Good, good. I um, I just I made some decisions this week, Alex. Mm-hmm. Did you? Yes, I got in. I got into a new video game. We we talked about this a little bit off stream, but I decided mm. to play, you know, Horizon Forbidden West, an incredibly great game, incredibly engrossing yeah, game. I I hear good things. Indeed, one where it's like I'm just gonna sit here and play this for four hours straight. Yeah, uh, something that's bad when you decide to tackle uh. Tackle a particular plot line that is part of a folder that literally is just called Hell Episodes. <laughs> <laughs> so, Alex, I, I think I might have told you this before, but I, don't, I know I definitely haven't told the audience. I have a list of podcast topics that I basically have cordoned off of, like, you need to, like, actually spend a few weeks working on this mm. because their plot lines are just going to be, like, so complicated or the story is just kind of so crazy. Mm-hmm. That intense amounts of research needs to go into it. I can imagine a few that I expect are sitting in there. Yeah, yeah. Like Final Fantasy VII, for instance, is one right. of those that's in there. Oh, God. God help us when we get to that one. Uh, and we will. Yeah, yeah, I expect so, but oh, boy. Mm-hmm. Um, another would be The Legend of Zelda, one that I've actually already have tried to write twice and have mm. failed both times. So has Nintendo, I believe. You would be correct. <laughs> They put out a giant book of that details all the plot lines and then immediately contradicted it like literally months later. It was great. Yep, yeah. But you know what? I decided that this week we're going to finally sit down. We're going to do one of those because honestly, it's been a while since we've gotten a plot line where it's been just kind of crazy and just all over the place. Yeah. Like yeah. we've been doing, doing like kind of like a lot of, it's kind of odd to call Call of Duty like a smaller, smaller mm, story, but it, right. it's a little bit more straightforward than this one. Uh, so I'm just going to kind of jump into this and just ask you a question that's going to immediately identify what it is. Yeah. Uh, how do you feel about zombies? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, zombies are great. I love zombies. There's two great things that you can do with zombies. Hmm. Uh, they can either be a metaphor for, like, the weird social anxiety we share as a species towards each other. And how, like, the seemingly faceless, almost mindless collective can become an overwhelming oppositionary force. Hmm. Or they can be just an endless horde of monsters to shoot in the head. Yep. Yep. Alex, you have a much more nuanced opinion on zombies than I do, and I appreciate that. Because I hate zombies. Oh. <laughs> and then mostly it's because there's just so much zombie media out there. Yeah, that's... Especially, like... 10 15 years ago we suddenly hit a zombie resurgence mm. yeah yeah and it's just been well it's been all zombies all the time and it's just not quite ever stopping it's like yeah. the comic book movies of yeah video games in many ways yeah and just media in general much. and that's not to say that i don't think there's like good zombie media out there like the walking dead is is great right for instance mm -hmm. right um of uh, world well, war z Okay, mostly. There's, there's good parts of The Walking Dead. It, it started really strong. Yeah. True, true. True, true. 
But like, you know, there's that. And then there's mm-hmm. like video games like Left 4 Dead are, are pretty, pretty awesome as well. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I said, they, they can be used very well for like, you know, certain metaphors about how we feel about society and how we perceive people in it. Like, it's something that has captured the imagination of the general public as a form of media and continues to do so to this day. Right. Now, this is obviously building to the obvious fact that we're going to be talking about good old Resident Evil. Yeah. Oh, this game, this series' plotline is stupid. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. And my God, it, uh, it's one of those things that we're going to be starting out with the first three games today, and that's mm. going to be about the most straightforward it gets. Yeah. yeah and then it, Im- it immediately stops right after that. Oh, boy. Yeah, it's... God, I can't wait to talk about the Wesker family legacy. I... My (laughs) God. I had forgotten about the Wesker family legacy until I started looking into good old Wesker. Oh, Wesker's the best. He's so stupid. He makes no sense. Wesker makes no sense. (laughs) He got a PhD at age 17. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's... It is one of the most bonker stories that Capcom has ever produced, which, given that we've already talked about Mega Man, should tell you something. Yeah, you thought Mega Man would be hard to top, but actually it's going to be easy. Yeah, it turns out. (laughs) (laughs) It it turns out that, yeah, Resident Evil... Resident Evil does this really interesting thing where it it attempts for a sense of realism in a a very intentional way. Mm Mm-hmm. And it completely falls apart halfway through. Yeah. Except the developers don't quite realize it. <laughs> and so they just keep writing more and more ludicrous things. It, 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 but honestly, the best way to describe it, it's, it's what if real people were in, an, were in an anime. Kind of, yeah. Yeah. And I came to that realization when I was looking at the backstories for a lot of the characters, and I realized a lot of them basically peak at age 16 somehow. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> And it's like, wait, hold on, what? (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so we're going to go ahead and and kind of like jump into this. But before we do that, it's probably good to talk about how Resident Evil even came to be in the first place. Mm. In order to get started on that, we kind of have to go back to, I believe, 1989 and talk about something kind of not completely different, but pretty darn different. Alex, have you ever played a game called Sweet Home? I have not, no. Sweet Home is really, really cool. It, for the longest time, was kind of one of those, like, forbidden gems of mm-hmm. from Japan in, in many ways. Uh, up there with, like, um, the Secret, Secret of Mana mm-hmm. uh, in Final Fantasy V. Now, Sweet Home is a Capcom-developed uh, Famicom game, uh, Nintendo Entertainment System for North America, that was released in 1989. Now, it's an ad- adaptation of a Japanese horror movie of the same name that was also released that year. Uh the movie itself is about a small film crew who decides like, to visit a famous artist's abandoned mansion, and then they all get murdered by a ghost. Oh, neat. Yeah. Uh, apparently, it's a very action-y movie, which was kind of different for Japanese horror at the time, mm, and it yeah, did pretty yeah. well. Oh, yeah. okay. Now, the game itself, though, is quite interesting. Uh, it's played from a top-down perspective, and it's an RPG where you actually control five different party members, and each of them like, have different skills. Like One of them has like a lighter, other has like a lockpick set. Mm. Mm-hmm. And you can, like, separate them, and they can go and, like, explore the mansion. You can flip between the different characters. And, like, mm. 
there's like six different endings depending on who like dies and who doesn't like and if like a character who has like a port item dies you have to like actually go find them and collect their locked pick or whatever so you can actually beat the game right so it's a very open-ended and kind of all over the place game that uh was known was regarded for having a very tense atmosphere mm-hmm. uh, i only played a little bit of it it was uh tr- it had a, got a fan translation in the year 2000 uh, one of the, kind of one of the first like full English translations of any Japanese video game done by a fan, mm. uh, and I I didn't finish it because it, it is a little archaic in certain places and it it is very easy to kind of get lost. Right. It, yeah. It is it is definitely a NES for Famicom game through and through in that fashion, right. but it is a pretty tense game overall. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, it, it's credited for kind of helping to kickstart the survival horror genre. Right. Uh, it's it's not considered as progenitor. But it's basically was something that was like, okay, hey, this is something we could like do, like some sort of like psychological horror game and make it kind of a big thing. Right. Yeah, I feel like that that concept of having multiple characters with different items that can split up simultaneously, I feel like I've heard that concept used somewhere else as well. Yeah, it, I I'm trying to think of of the other of another game that like I don't know if it was like one of the Clock Tower games or something like that. Yeah, but it's, it's yeah def- it feels almost Clock Towerish. Yeah, yeah, but it's definitely Sweet Home is definitely an inspirational game in many ways. Yeah. Now this weird movie license game is once again impre- incredibly important because it helps to establish the groundwork for a new genre of game, the survival mm-hmm. horror genre. Now it's not the game that's going to start this, or at least what we consider the modern survival horror game. Right. Uh, that would arguably be 1992's Alone in the Dark. Yep. Uh, a game that if you look at it and then look at Resident Evil right mm-hmm. afterwards, you go like, "Oh, y'all just kind of <laughs> copy that and made the graphics look better, didn't you?" They were very big fans. They were, uh, as we will get to in a second. Alone in the Dark is a really, really cool game. Mm. I really like that. Uh, its its sequels are terrible, but yeah, <laughs> but yeah, well, game, what a series that went downhill. <laughs> oh yes, but boy, that first game, really, really good and very, very influential. Games like Silent Hill and games like Resident Evil don't mm-hmm. exist without it. Yep, or at least not in the way that we expect them to. Now, it is responsible for leading to the creation of the most famous franchise in the survival horror genre, Resident Evil or Biohazard, as it's known in Japan. So, Alex, what is your experience with Resident Evil? So the first Resident Evil I played was 4 on the GameCube. Hmm. Um, Several years later, I played 5, mostly co-op with one of my college roommates. Um, And then years later, I played... Oh, that's not true. I actually played the GameCube remake of Resident Evil 1 for Hmm. a few hours. um, And then stopped playing it because I played it on hard difficulty... (laughs) <laughs> without basically any experience in survival horror, and then was very confused mm, and yeah. also frustrated by the controls. Yeah, that is not the Resident Evil remake is a great game, right? Not one you want to start out on a hard. Mode. No, no, it's not. <laughs> so, so actually, only a few years ago now, probably I went back and played. That remake again, I think on PS4 this time. Hmm. And uh, this time I absolutely loved it. I think yeah. Resident Evil 1 slash Resident Evil Remake is an amazingly designed game. Oh, yes. 
Yeah, it's a game that takes an incredibly bad control scheme and actually makes it work mm-hmm. in a sense of like adding tension and whatnot. Like it's it's a yeah. game where bad controls are a feature, not a curse. Yeah, it's it's actually a game where like the newer releases are like, here's a new control scheme that isn't that terrible thing, and you're like, this is worse actually. Mm-hmm. You mean I can now sidestep in Resident Evil Five? Wow. Like, no, this breaks it. This is terrible. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. It's. Like, I, I don't know if we'll get into it, but it, it basically one of the features of Resident Evil is that it's very cinematic and it all operates on fixed camera. Yeah. So you you basically move through rooms with one viewpoint, which means that because the the places they put the camera, it's very easy for a normal control scheme to get misconfigured. Mm-hmm. And like, you don't know which... Or, or like, you will round a corner... And suddenly your camera will be in a different place and you'll have to, like, switch orientations. Yeah. But Resident Evil's classic control scheme is if you push up on the control stick, you're going to move forward. Mm-hmm. And if you push left, you're going to rotate counterclockwise. Yeah. Tank so, controls is what they call them. Yeah. Yes. And so it, it no matter what the camera is doing, that input remains consistent. And so it actually allows the camera to cut however it wants to mm-hmm. without the player's input getting messed up. Yeah, exactly. And it works out perfectly. And like you said, if they were to do like more traditional controls, uh, yeah. as they actually put as an option in the Nintendo 64 port of Resident Evil okay. 2, and I have actually tried those out, it does not work. No, it doesn't. <laughs> they have to do a weird thing where like, your controls remain consistent after the camera cut until you let go, and then they change to the new camera's orientation. Mm-hmm. And it's it's weird. Yeah, still throws you off. Still throws you off. So yeah, you got started at a probably one of the high points in Resident Evil's uh, yeah. long and storied franchise. Because yeah, boy, remake and four less, are great. Oh yeah, oh yeah, four four is incredible. Four is the yes. one that convinced me. Oh no, wait, the series is actually good. Hmm. I got started with Resident Evil 3. Okay, that's not the worst place. Yeah, it's the one where everyone goes, huh, this seems like a step back, but okay. Yeah. Whereas I, being the first first one to play, like, first one I, I actually played, I'm like, this is great. Wow, mm-hmm. look at this. Nemesis is awesome. He follows you through rooms. Yeah. And then I went and played Resident Evil 2, and I was like, oh, wow, this is so much better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> huh, what do you know? But yeah, Resident Evil is a is a series that has some of the highest highs in mm-hmm. Capcom. Uh, and in fact, the call Resident Evil important to Capcom would be like a vast understatement. Uh, with roughly 30 or so bespoke titles in the series, like not counting re-releases or ports, mm-hmm. uh, second only to Mega Man's 64 bespoke titles. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and in, in, and it's currently still an ongoing series. Like there's currently mm-hmm. a in-development big-budget remake of the fourth game. Yep. As well as uh, expansive, expansive DLC for the the game that is canonically <laughs> the eighth game, but is more like the 29th. Yeah. <laughs> I, needless to say that this is easily one of their two pillars uh, mm-hmm. at Capcom today, alongside Monster Hunter. Now, uh, while it's true that Street Fighter 2 was like the most successful game Capcom ever made, and the Mega Man series easily has the most games overall... Resident Evil stands apart from the two by just being an incredibly successful series from the get-go. Mm-hmm. 
Like within the first year of its release, the original Resident Evil sold nearly 4 million copies worldwide. And that's in like 1996, 1997 dollars, like in terms of bulk, I should say. It broke through the cultural mainstream in a way few games of the era did as well. Uh, it helped inspire a boom in survival horror jo- games in like general, like your mm-hmm. Silent Hills and whatnot were made kind of in direct response to that. Right. Uh, games such as like Clock Tower already sort of existed at this point, right. but like a lot of their like controls and like ideas uh, behind in those in that particular series, like starting like the Clock Tower three onwards, uh, do take like a very Resident Evil inspired like tone to them, and. According to some uh, some people and like other pieces of media, it also is important for helping bring back the zombie as a popular horror trope in films. Hmm. Yeah, I found this very interesting. Uh, Simon Pegg, writer and actor mm-hmm. in movies such as Shaun of the Dead and the Star Trek reboot, like actually credited Resident Evil with helping to make zombies a popular thing to write about again. Right. And huh. helping to us. Yeah. I, I. Yeah. This is from a BBC article specifically that I found this. It, like helped to like inspire like the latest like never ending crop of zombie related media. Uh, now I I do quibble with this a little bit because it would be re- very reductive to say that like Resident Evil deserves sole credit for this because right. we'd be sort of dancing around a very large zombie shaped hole that is the underlying <laughs> inspiration for all of this. Yeah, which is of course the director George Romero and yeah. a little movie called Night of the Living Dead. You ever watch Night of the Living Dead? I've seen part of it, I think. Hmm. I haven't I haven't sat down through the whole thing, but I think I caught like the middle third or so. I saw it a long time ago. Yeah. Like back when I was in college. And it's it was made in nineteen sixty eight. Uh mm-hmm. pretty tense movie, all told, uh, even to this day. Uh made on a very, very low budget. Extremely I, low, yeah. I, I think it was something like Three hundred thousand uh, dollars, ended up like garnering something like thirty million dollars in mm-hmm. box office, uh, nineteen sixty eight dollars, of course. Like it was incredibly, incredibly successful uh, to the point that, uh, like, it was almost expected that Romero was going to make a sequel, and then mm-hmm. he like totally didn't because he didn't want to be penned as a horror movie guy. <laughs> right. Well. So, <laughs> yeah. It's, ten years later, he ended up making the the sequel, uh, Dawn of the Dead, uh, which. Uh, is arguably even more influential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And was also even more successful and also made on the shoestring budget. Uh, these two movies helped inspire our direct inspiration for Resident Evil, and that is directly from uh, Shinji Mikami, who is the director of the first game and later producer of the series before he left Capcom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and needless to say, a lot of other zombie-related media will go back and cite dead series is what it's called yeah. as their main inspiration for wanting to make zombie movies or being interested in zombies so yeah resident evil i think definitely does get credit for helping to make it a popular concept again mm-hmm. but it's it's always been just kind of bubbling underneath and to be fair it's mostly in north america that the zombie movie kind of disappeared for a while internationally zombie movies were being made like in quite a few different countries such right. as like italy as we'll get into in a second mm. yeah I mean, that's that's not where I would expect it. But at the same time, like, the, the great thing about zombies for filmmaking is that they are cheap. Yes. Zombies are incredibly cheap to do. And so if if you're working, if you're making movies in a country that doesn't have the massive monolithic movie industry that America does, mm-hmm. and you're working with a lower budget, yeah, zombies are awesome. Zombies rule. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, so it totally makes sense that if you don't have a huge amount of budget, eh, you know, and you want to make a horror movie, yeah. zombies, good way to go. Get like eight extras, put them in makeup. There you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're good to go. So we're going to just kind of dive into the development of Resident Evil just really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the development of Resident Evil started after the original director of Sweet Home, uh, Tokiro Fujiwara, who's an incredibly important person at Capcom. Like, mm. Basically anything that... Uh, was important Capcom in the 80s and 90s. He was probably the producer or director of. And that oh. includes stuff like Mega Man. Mm. Yeah, so Fujiwara, uh, also known as Professor F, which is a great, na- great <laughs> awesome. nickname. Freaking yes. awesome. Yeah, he really wanted to remake Sweet Home for the Super Nintendo. Now, being a producer at this time, he didn't have time to help the project directly. So instead, he got a relatively uh, newish game designer to helm a project with some inexperienced Capcom employees. Mm. Uh, now, this uh, game designer was Shinji Mikami, a man who's very well known at this point. Yep. At this time, though, he'd just been there for about three years and actually had been a designer on uh, Capcom's Disney series, which is... Oh, yeah. Yeah, like um, the Super Nintendo versions of Aladdin and Goof Troop, for instance, he was one of the main designers for. Mm. Uh, these which, two games, by the way, are awesome. They are. Most of Capcom's Disney games are better than you think. Indeed. They are... They are classics. Yep. <laughs> With maybe one ex- or two exceptions. <laughs> so yeah, it, it's kind of funny though. Like he's come coming from this bubbly world and whatnot of mm-hmm. like Disney stuff. And according to interviews he gave at uh he's given like later, mm-hmm. he also claimed that he didn't want to take this project on because he hated being scared. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, that is a quote that is aged. Oh yes. <laughs> Yeah, and he seems like he's a bad fit for this, but I also think he's kind of a liar. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, he's also a big fan of zombie movies. And I, I note this not only because he cites his George Romero as like an inspiration for Resident right. Evil, but he even goes so far to note in some interviews that when it came to developing Resident Evil, he actually wanted to avoid the failings of another movie he was profoundly disappointed in, which was the Italian horror movie Zombie 2 by a legendary filmmaker, uh, Lucio Fulci. Hmm. Uh, zombie 2 is a well well regarded uh horror movie mm-hmm. that for one reason or another mikami just hated huh. and that seems like a weird deep cut to point out <laughs> for somebody who's like oh no i hate being scared anyways right. let me tell you about the zombie movie i was disappointed in <laughs> it's like no sh- shut up <laughs> <laughs> so the game got started development on super nintendo in 1993 but it quickly switched to playstation in 94 mm. and now at first the game was supposed to hem pretty closely to sweet home Mm-hmm. Uh, five characters RPG like mechanics, but and I they decided like no, let's go for like, just like generally a more realistic setting and kind of do something that was yeah more of a send up to those classic zombie movies. Mm-hmm. Now they wanted to take a very realistic approach to this, and they like, they experimented with a first person perspective, uh, but this was dropped when Mikami played Alone in the Dark. Mm-hmm. Now yep. at first he wasn't cool with like the third person camera and all and whatnot. Uh-huh. But the team were like, no, this would actually work perfectly. And eventually he was kind of worn down. It's like, okay, let's, we'll go ahead and implement this. I don't think it's a good idea, but we'll mm-hmm. go ahead and do it. And yeah, it turns out that was probably the right decision overall. Right. Yeah, probably so. <laughs> Although, as we'll get into later with Resident Evil 7 or 8, uh, first person perspective does work pretty it well. It does. You... It actually does. <laughs> but especially at that time, I think if they'd gone first person, people would have expected too much of an action game out of it. Yeah. Yeah. And. You know, PlayStation games don't exactly look the greatest in the first place. Also, also, yeah. And yeah, part of the reason why some of the models in the uh, 
and the PlayStation Resident Evil games look so good is because they use pre-rendered backgrounds. Right. So they were able to put as much detail into those zombies who still don't really look that great. Yeah, no, not so much. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, probably the right decision overall. Mm. Now, further little touches were done to make the game more realistic as well. Uh, for instance, they used live-action cutscenes featuring American actors. Oh, filmed in Japan. Oh, my uh, God. Those are the best. Oh, yes. I highly, highly advise you to, dear listener at home, I'll probably put a link to uh-huh. in the description, to look at these cutscenes because they are so good. Oh, that's so good. And they're played with 100% seriousness. Mm-hmm. We know this because they did intentionally did English voice acting with Japanese subtitles for the game. Mm. And, like, because the game's supposed to take place in the United States. And the whole point with this was to make it as realistic as possible. Make it feel like you're really there. Which, later when um, the Japanese team heard about how American audiences laughed at, like, the incredibly bad acting and whatnot, Mm -hmm. they were like, oh, we're going to definitely have to redub this game entirely (laughs) when we remake it. Which is exactly what they did. Yeah. So the game itself was expected to be kind of a dud upon release, only expecting mm. about 200000 in sales. But Which, well, to be fair, it's, it's good to taper your expectations with horror games. Yeah, totally. A lesson yeah, Res- that Capcom would forget to keep in mind. Indeed, indeed. Yeah, horror games don't typically sell well as a rule of thumb. Resident Evil is the huge, huge exception to this rule. Yeah. So Alex, you want to talk the blood of Resident Evil? I really do. All right, so Resident Evil takes place in the year 1998. So the world as it's set up is basically just like the modern world of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing really too crazy is going on, uh, at least for now. And it takes place mostly in the Midwest. So it's centered around a little city called Raccoon City. Now, we don't, we don't exactly know where Raccoon City is at all. Mm-hmm. The best way I could describe it is that it seems like it's, I don't know, Cincinnati. <laughs> right. Kind of big, but really nondescript. And it centers around a little team of police officers called the STARS unit. Now, STARS stands for Special Tactics and Rescue Service. Basically, they are a special forces unit, kind of like SWAT, except... Um, they're more created in partnership with the Raccoon City Police Department between them and a private corporation, a bio a biopharmaceutical company by the name of Umbrella. Who it's funds really weird, and, actually. Yeah, it kind of is. Yeah, they just completely fund this weird special forces group and they just kind of like take up residence in like the Raccoon City Police Department. Yeah. For a small city? Yeah, it's over a hundred thousand, but but so it's, it's, it's also it's, smallish. Yeah. Yeah, it's... They're basically there to help deter terrorist attacks, which is like... Right. But, but you're Raccoon Cincinnati. City. Yeah. <laughs> so, also, yeah. you don't go to, or I believe see, Raccoon City in the first game? You don't, no. It's just sort of the tangential setting. Hmm. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So don't, wor- don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, for now. So... In July 1998, uh, a series of gruesome murders happen in the woods that are around Raccoon City. Basically, it looks like people are getting murdered and eaten for some reason, and that's really strange. So it seems to be all centered around these, this mountain range called the Arclay Mountains. And this little mansion that just kind of is hanging out in there. So it's, de- it's decided that they're going to send in stars to investigate. Send in two teams, Alpha Team and Bravo Team. 
Uh, they send in Bravo team first, and nobody hears from them. They just immediately disappear. And so it's like, okay, well, day later, let's go ahead and send in Alpha team. So they fly in via helicopter for some reason, and then just land randomly in the middle of the woods. Yeah. And upon exiting in nice live action cutscene glory, <laughs> they are immediately beset by evil dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so they like, well, first they find Bravo teams like derelict helicopter. It's like all just on the ground and abandoned. And they find like the pilot who's like all dead. And then they're immediately like attacked by mutant dogs who just immediately murder one person of Alpha Team. And so they all run and escape. They find this mansion, they get inside, lock the door, and like, oh, okay, well, those dogs were weird. We kept shooting them and they weren't dying. This is everything strange about this. We should probably investigate what's going on here. And this is where we meet our four members of Alpha Team, who are the last survivors. So the first we meet is are two playable characters, Chris Redfield and Jill Valentine, as well as their two support characters, Barry Burton and their leader, Albert Wesker, which, as we already, already alluded to in the intro, is Captain Albert Wesker, PhD. <laughs> which, why, why is he on the SWAT force with a PhD? It's, uh, I have no idea. <laughs> Well, we're going to learn later, but for right now, we have no idea. He seems way too qualified for this. Yeah, and also qualified in different things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many, many different things. That man's a doctor. He is? <laughs> doctor <laughs> Officer Albert Wesker. <laughs> and the best part is that this man does not look like somebody who should already have his doctorate in anything. No. He, He's basically like a 20-something looking man with um, basically blonde hair that's like slicked straight up, uh, wears sunglasses all the time. All the time, even during the night op. Yep, even during the night op. And speaks in a very monotone voice. Now, I'm going to go over the backstories of each of these characters, and we're going to go in the order from least ridiculous to most ridiculous. Great. So, starting with Barry Byrne. Barry is a man in, appears in his 40s, a friend of Chris. Uh, he was in the Air Force. Uh, when he left the Air Force, he decided to join up with Stars. Simple, to the point. Mm -hmm. He's good with guns. Yep. Chris Redfield, our first playable character, also part of the Air Force. Um, he apparently was a fighter pilot and eventually just kind of like got drummed out due to insubordination. He's a very, very opinionated man. Mm -hmm. uh, eventually ended up being recruited directly by Stars in order to join their task force. Now, I, next. I don't know why you'd pick. A fighter pilot specifically to do on foot missions, but that's the, you know, it's odd, yeah. But so far, M things are kind military, of aligned, I guess. Yeah, yeah, like military to to law enforcement is a very direct path yeah. in many ways. So so far, all checks out. Jill Valentine is a former U.S. Army member who trained with the Delta Force. Ah, okay. She she was so impressive. She was basically ended up undergoing six months worth of training and has special forces experience somehow. <laughs> uh, Delta Force being, of course, the equivalent to the Special Air Service here in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, she's just a uh, master at, uh, at lockpicking and uh, in general is just... Yeah, <laughs> oh, you yes, saw how the, I... the Delta Force lockpicking squadron. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Well-known specialization. Well-known, yes. Yeah, also, so Jill, 
Uh, if you are asking yourselves at home, boy, that's a really impressive resume. Does her characterization in the first game reflect that? No. Absolutely not. No. Not at all. And finally, there's our Captain Albert Wesker, who has the most ridiculous backstory <laughs> that we're not going to learn until about three games from now. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll leave it for then. <laughs> so they all decide to split up. Um, Jill and Barry go off in one direction chris and wesker go off in another and they do start finding like members of the like bravo team um that are all like either dead or dying like some have their throats ripped out some of them have are being eaten by people uh in fact one of them that he's being found is being eaten by a person like that person gets up and tries to attack him and like they have to put like 20 bullets in to kill him and they're like oh wow it's like this person's like a zombie or something like that (laughs) That's because they are. Because now the other dead Bravo team members are also starting to be resurrected and attack them. So uh, Wesker ends up disappearing during this time. Uh, Chris and Jill get split up. And they all decide, okay, we need to investigate what's going on here because this is really messed up. Zombies are now real. So as they go through and start finding the other different members of Bravo team, usually in some various states of dying, they also run into all sorts of just weird stuff. Uh, Zombie dogs. Uh, weird giant snakes that just exist for some reason <laughs> and plants that have become incredibly overgrown and now have the taste of for human blood. Yeah, sure. Yeah. On top of that, the mansion is just constantly booby-trapped and trying to murder them in different ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, mostly Jill is the one who's trying to get murdered by things like crushing ceilings and whatnot. It's a really messed up mansion. It's yeah. a really messed up mansion. Now... For Chris, you know, he doesn't have a little friend who's hanging out with him, but he soon does find one. The last surviving member of Bravo team, and maybe the one with the most ridiculous backstory not named Wesker, Rebecca Chambers. Uh, uh. Rebecca is an 18-year-old member of STARS, a special forces unit, essentially, (laughs) who graduated college already with a biochemistry degree, (laughs) and this was immediately recruited for the team. (laughs) <laughs> she apparently is so like new that she has like a member of Bravo team who's specifically tasked to watch over her, which makes it feel like she should not be in the field at all. But yeah, I think also especially in the advanced unit, like the first w- unit they sent in. Yeah, right. It seems like a bad choice. Now it turns out we're we're gonna be learning a lot more about Rebecca when we we initially, like eventually talk about good old Resident Evil Zero, <laughs> a game that should not be able to take place in the timeline, but somehow does. <laughs> and Rebecca's gonna be showing up in various parts of Resident Evil because she just is kind of a popular character who just doesn't go away. Yeah. So despite the fact that I think the developers kind of hate her. Yeah. <laughs> She's one of those popular with the fans, yeah. not popular with the developers' characters. So, so she keeps the, showing up. Every <laughs> once in a while, they grumble and just put her in somewhere just to shut people up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they all are continuing to explore around, and they start to discover a few things about this mansion. First off, this mansion's called the Spencer Mansion, and it turns out it is a mansion that is run by Umbrella Pharmaceuticals. Uh everyone's favorite biochemistry company that has also created their own weird SWAT team. And it turns out they were doing a whole lot of really weird experiments in here. Mm-hmm. Because it turns out they discovered a little virus called the Regenitor virus. Mm. 
Now, the progenitor virus was discovered by the founder of of uh, Umbrella, a one Dr. Oswald E. Spencer, uh, who I believe is an Earl. He indeed is an yeah. Earl. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, he he is he is very much British. <laughs> he, so he's a British noble. It's great. Yeah, so it turns out they discovered this in the 1960s and have been do, using it for research experiments, uh, including up to uh, up to and including kidnapping an American family by the name of the Trevors. Yeah, and immediately seeing what will happen if we inject them with the virus. <laughs> turns out bad things. Um, yeah, turns out kills George and Jessica outright, and Lisa, the daughter, ends up basically becoming this immortal, weird golem creature? Yeah, that was... So the the wild thing about this story is that the the virus, the regenerator virus, will just sort of do whatever. Yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah. L- Lisa's, like, wild. She is. Also, yeah, as Alex just alluded to, get used to viruses in this series <laughs> and them just doing whatever the fuck they want. Viruses are magic in this. Viruses yeah. are what magic are. It's insane. Yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Completely. Um, so I'm trying to remember, was was Lisa content added to the remake or director's cut? Or was, was that content already always in there? So it was added to the remake. Okay, that's what I thought. Because, um, as Mike said, like, a lot of this... A lot of this game is very, like, Romero-esque and very 60s to 80s zombie movie-esque. And so there's there's a lot of camp. Mm-hmm. There's a lot there of camp and cheese just throughout. And, like, the voice acting is just fantastic. It's just so over-the-top and nonsensical. And so, like, it, it it's it's a very horror atmosphere, but it's it's always kind of like a campy horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, the content with the Trevors is like the darkest. It is so, it, it is well done, but it is so tonally dissonant with how dark and tragic and horrifying it is compared to everything else. Cause it's all told through like heartfelt, agonizing diary entries and letters to his family of the the patriarch of the Trevor family and mm. just, you know, grieving the loss of his family and the horrific fate of Lisa. And mm. then you finally meet her like in a cave and you, you can't even kill her. You got to just run. And it, it's almost hilarious how totally different it is. It is. Cause yeah, it's just the immediate like, Hey, here's all these zombies, and oh yeah, they're killing all these people. Oh, Boy, it's really snake. crazy. Yeah, Shoot wow. Shoot with the grenade launcher. Oh, by the way, here's this nine-year-old girl we've been experimenting on for years and turning her into a complete and total monster. It's like, oh. what? Wow, okay. This was written by either a different person or the same person at a different stage of their life. Mm-hmm. And it kind of all goes comes back to the fact that like they did intend the original Resident Evil to be a serious thing, and right. saw the reaction to it as this campy sort of thing, and they were mm-hmm. like, "No, we can't have that." <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that, they also wanted to explain where exactly um, the virus that's transforming everybody into zombies, what's called the T virus, mm-hmm. uh, 
like what the origins are and whatnot. It's like kind of built on the backstory. So this is their way of inserting that, and it's weird. Oh, that's right. Uh, everything in this series has to have an origin. Yes. Like oh, a th- this is very specific origin. This is Capcom. Capcom does not leave loose ends. No. Uh, they will introduce a million things, and it will find a way to tie them all up in usually the dumbest way possible. Yeah, pretty much usually. Unless you're Mega Man Legends, in which case, sorry, yeah, guys. Yeah, yeah, screw it. <laughs> so, so yeah, uh, basically throughout the game, you encounter Lisa. And she's absolutely unkillable and is, uh, is absolutely horrible, but she also doesn't have much of an impact on the story beyond no, that. No, <laughs> because, again, she was new to the remake, and so she couldn't impact the story because the story was already there. Mm-hmm. She just yeah. had to sort of hang out in the corners. Yep, pretty much. So let's just assume that she's just having the time of her life in the mansion as we get back to our heroes, specifically good old Chris. So Chris eventually does find the team captain for Bravo Team, uh, Enrico mm-hmm. Marini, and he's, like, very injured. Like, he's been shot whatnot, and he, like, reveals there's a traitor who's been running around killing all the different Stars members. And, like, Chris is like, wait, who is it? And Enrico's like, it's you, and he, like, he points the gun at him. But before he could shoot Chris... Somebody else shoots him from off screen and runs away before he can be seen. And then, and then Enrico like reveals that this is all Umbrella's plots, mostly just by saying Umbrella. And Chris goes, "Oh, they're behind all this." As we're in their mansion and all these horrible things are happening. Wow. Feel like I should have put that two and two together earlier. Anyways, eventually they end up discovering the secret laboratory that's. Underneath the mansion. So, go from Jill's perspective, we'll just go with her perspective. Mm-hmm. It could be either character. Because um, you don't play with both of them at the same time. You select one or the other at the start of the game. Right. And uh, it makes, like, weird minor differences to how the story actually plays out. Mm-hmm. Which makes canonizing the exact storyline of these games really tough. Yeah. Actually. And it's... <laughs> Spoilers, they're not going to stop that. <laughs> yeah, no. It's only going to increase. Yep. So Jill and Barry get into the basement and like at this point Barry's starting to act a little weird like they'll like find a piece of evidence but all of a sudden like it's deleted or like destroyed or something like that and mm-hmm. Barry will be like man I don't know what's going on here that's kind of weird. <laughs> well they eventually end up running into Albert. Good old Wesker. So he immediately points a gun at them. Uh, and like Joel like points his gun at him and they're like, oh, they're like have a standoff and they're like you know, Wesker, what are you doing? Oh, you must be the traitor who's killing everybody. And at that same moment, Barry, like, points his gun at Jill. And Jill's like, but Barry, what the hell? <laughs> and Wesker basically lays the cards out. He's like, oh, yeah, no, I threatened his family uh, and said, hey, if you don't work with me, guess what? I'm going to murder them. Have fun with that. And so he, t- he tells Barry to go ahead and leave, and, you know, go up uh, to the top of the mansion and, like, start up a helicopter, essentially, so they can escape. And Wesker then reveals his entire grand stupid plan. So, <laughs> Wesker, it turns out, is a former U.S. Army researcher. <laughs> yeah, he's a biochemist himself. And he was recruited by Umbrella's USA's lab team to come and work for them and act as like a liaison between them and the U.S. government. So it turns out, with the progenitor virus, they were able to develop it in something called the T-virus. The T-virus... Uh, T stands for tyrant, by the way, was their idea of, like, we'll use this to create weird bioweapons. Basically, tall humans who could be intelligent but super powerful and indestructible. Of course, 
things kind of went wrong. A complete version of virus came out, turned people into zombies, caused a whole big kerfluffle at the mansion that now needs to be covered up. Wesker, however, sees this as an opportunity, though, to test out the bioweapons against a team of hardened special forces operatives and show the U.S. government and other agencies that, hey, our bioweapons should be bought. Look how they murdered this weird Delta <laughs> Force person who's not really a Delta Force person. And so Jill's like horrified. It's like, how can you do this for money? How can you and Umbrella do this? And Wesker's like, oh, I'm not working for Umbrella. I hate those guys, and I'm going to just straight up betray them and sell this to the highest bidder. <laughs> Funny, huh? <laughs> Yeah, so actually I'm the only one who's actually even threatening Barry's family. He thinks it's Umbrella, but it's actually just me. <laughs> kind of funny, right? It's hilarious. Oh, oh no, Barry, you're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Barry just shows him, just shoots him. <laughs> uh, which does not happen in the original game, by the way. This is mm. a remake added thing. And so Wesker's like, oh, wow, didn't expect that one. Well, it's a good thing I'm standing next to this tube that contains the tyrant. <laughs> so the t so he immediately drains this tube that has this six-foot gray man who's completely naked and has, like, a weird mutated, like, dagger arm, essentially. Yeah. And supposedly it's intelligent and can follow orders, and it, like, immediately breaks out of its capsule and whatnot. And Wester's like, ha, guess you're all gonna die now. How How's it feel? Bet you all feels dumb. Tyron turns around, immediately stabs Wesker in the chest and kills him. Immediately. And so you and Barry, and you, by you, I mean Jill. Jill and Barry, and I guess Chris is there too. We'll just say he's there. Yeah, yeah, and, Chris is there. Uh, immediately run to the helipad because now all of a sudden a self-destruct mechanism has been put in place. And yeah, sure. The match is going to blow up in like 15 minutes. Don't know they why it didn't activate that sooner, but okay. Yeah, you figured it would, but eh. So they get up to the helipad and they alert their um their helicopter pilot, a one Brad Vickers, to come and pick him up. But you know, while he's still flying in, the tyrant reaches him and they like start fighting and whatnot. He's completely indestructible. But uh luckily for them, uh they're I believe it's Brad. It, it, no, I think it's um whoever your uh, secondary character is. If you're mm. playing as Joel, this will it'll be Barry. If it's Chris, it'll be um Rebecca. They throw you a rocket launcher, which you use to blow up the tyrant. The helicopter lands. You all get on the helicopter and fly away, and the mansion explodes, ending the game. And uh, that's uh, that is Resident Evil. Yeah. A pretty, yeah, you know, pretty, uh, pretty self-contained, good story. Nothing yeah. too crazy. Yeah, kind of wraps up its ends. Like it, it has sort of a a bit of a ridiculousness to its premise and why all this is happening, but it makes sense. It's like you know, bioweapon gone wrong. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it wraps itself up really, really deeply, and in general, is just, you know, it's a, it's a good little story. Yeah. Of course, as with anything that Capcom does that it was that's massively successful, however, mm -hmm. Capcom immediately saw this and went, we need to make a sequel now, and we need to make all the sequels. Yep, all the sequels, and also a number of other series that are Resident Evil, but... Mm-hmm. And so Capcom immediately gets started on that. <laughs> <laughs> So Mikami and the team behind Resident Evil get start almost immediately started on Resident Evil 2, a game that's going to have kind of a weird development history that we aren't going to really have time to get too deeply into. Yeah. Uh, but needless to say, it essentially had a most... It, it's, hard, it's actually very debatable how complete it was, but a mostly... Let's say a mostly complete first version of the game, a Resident Evil 1.5, if you will. Yeah. That mostly follows a lot of the plot beats of Resident Evil 2, uh, but they ended up getting... Uh, scrapped just due to like weird uh, 
weird gameplay uh, reasons. Uh, it was kind of a dull game and mm-hmm. just other. Also, the plot apparently was one that kind of made things very final, and Capcom didn't like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that probably wouldn't go over well. Yeah, so they're like, I, maybe we should kind of redo this. Yeah. So they did. And they ended up putting together Resident Evil 2. Which a lot of people regarded as the best in the series for a long time. So ultimately, good decision, I guess. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. Yes, it is a it is a game that is incredibly ambitious in its scope and scale in many ways. Mm-hmm. It has like a really, really interesting gimmick. Because once again, you play as two distinct characters, uh, Leon S. Kennedy and Claire Redfield, which we'll get into in a second. But the main thing is that there's two different scenarios. Right. You pick one character to play through the game, and then you play a second alternate scenario with the other character. Uh, and each of the scenarios, the, you know, the A and B scenarios, are different depending on which character you can play. So there's kind of like four different stories going on mm-hmm. in some ways. Like, they, are, they all share beats. Like, um, scenario B is going to involve uh, having you to, like, run away from, like, a super powerful tyrant by the name of Mr. X, for right. instance. Uh, whereas I think plot A mostly deals with you having to fight uh, uh, the G monster, essentially. But for the most part, it it all ends up following this like pretty pretty solid story throughout. Uh, that thankfully, actually, it isn't too hard to like figure out what is kind of like the canonical way through because it really mm-hmm. doesn't matter too much what the differences are. Right. Uh, I need to say though, it did lead to a lot of replayability and kind of like a lot of interesting things that kind of went on in in the game in general. Uh, it, it takes place in Raccoon City in general as it undergoes a attack from zombies essentially. <laughs> As you try to find a way to escape, all while learning more and more about how Umbrella is just kind of the worst company <laughs> in the world. <laughs> they sort of just do every evil thing that they could? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they did. And this, this game is considered to be one of the greatest PlayStation games of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's go ahead and just jump into the plot of it right now. So Resident Evil 2 takes place months after the first game. Uh, in September of 1998. So it's kind of hard to determine exactly how the game starts because (laughs) there are multiple canonical backstories for all the characters and how the (laughs) events kind of got started. And that's not including the fact that this game did technically get a remake in, I believe, 2019. Yeah, somewhere around there. But uh, just different supplemental materials and whatnot kind of explain how the characters got in got into the the situation they got into right and if you're saying wait why don't we just ask capcom what the canon is they don't know they don't know there's a reason why there's multiple and they change their minds all the time yep yep so i'm gonna just do a kind of an amalgamation of everything so the game seems to start with like a series of murders that start happening around raccoon city that are cannibalistic in nature on top of that, like, dogs start going crazy and other weird things are just happening. This ends up reaching, like, a breaking point when all of a sudden just a large amount of the city's population just becomes zombies overnight, essentially. <laughs> <laughs> this leads to the city being locked down and, like, the police trying to respond to that by basically just killing all the zombies mm. and immediately failing because they don't understand that zombies are basically invincible in this right. game. And so then the police get overwhelmed, turns them into zombies, who then start attacking the civilians, turning them into zombies. And all the while, nobody can escape because the U.S. military hears about this, surrounds the city, and institutes a lockdown. 
Which, by the way, then the zombies reach them, zombify them as well. Yeah, of course, yeah, <laughs> as you do. And, and now everything is just gone to hell. And that's how we meet our first, well, our two main characters. Rookie cop Leon S. Kennedy and university student and sister to Chris, Claire Redfield. So how it goes is that both of them decide to go to Raccoon City on the day of the zombie attack. <laughs> Not because the zombie attack's happening, but because, well, they all have their different reasons. For Claire, it's because Chris, her brother, has just disappeared mysteriously, and she wants to go to Raccoon City to find out what happened. Uh, turns out Chris just went to go uh, find out what's Umbrella's deal in mm -hmm. Europe, and he just decided not to tell Claire, I guess. Oh, um, I mean, I guess that makes sense if he's trying to keep a low profile. Yeah, but still, good brother. Yeah. That's just a very straightforward sort of thing. Uh, Claire is a um, brunette woman with a ponytail, 21 years of age in this game, I believe. Uh, wears like a red, like a red jacket. Um, mm. Exposed midriff. Uh, loves motorcycles. Uh, like I like her. She's a cool character. Yeah. Uh, but she is not the star of this show. No. No, the star of this show is rookie Leon S. Candy of the Raccoon Police Department. Today is his first day on the job. <laughs> And my God, Leon. Oh, Leon. Leon's backstory is insane. So, Leon, none of this is explained in Resident Evil 2, by the way. No, it should, <laughs> be, all... it should be noted that most of the popularity around Leon comes more or less from 4, in which he yes. also stars. Mm -hmm. And then retroactively hits 2. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. And that's when he decided, maybe we should give this guy a backstory. That's oh. insane. Yeah. Sure, why not? <laughs> so, Leon is an Italian-American who lost his entire family at a young age due to mafia-related violence. <laughs> <laughs> Upon this happening, he decides that he's going to become a cop one day. That's just what he's going to do. He's going to get the bad guys. Mm -hmm. Now, he graduates from the police academy and immediately asks to be assigned to the Raccoon City Police Department, which um, it's not how... I don't think that's how police academies work, but... no. Usually run by the city that they're in. But anyways, point also, is... Also, um, why? What, is he from Raccoon City? No. But he wants to go there because he hears about all the murders, and he's like, I could do some good there. Does Raccoon City have a lot of murders? Well, you know, all those cannibalistic murders were happening over the course of weeks, apparently. Oh. Yeah. Right, but I thought they solved those. No, but remember... Um, well, there was those that he heard about, and then there was more murders that started happening at Raccoon City itself okay. that led to the Okay. So, like, this, this request was recent. Yes. I see. Yeah, he literally just graduated and went, I want to go to Raccoon City, and he went, okay, your first day is two weeks from now. Oh, I okay. Um, and th so they were like, yeah, okay, graduate rookie, we'll just assign you to the police force dealing with all these murders right now. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I don't you know. know how the police, or for that matter, the military works in the Resident Evil universe, but it doesn't <laughs> seem well. Very incompetently, let's, let's say. <laughs> there, nobody is competent here. <laughs> Except for, ironically, Leon S. Kennedy. Yeah, uh, turns out. Although, depending on, his, on, depending on which source you read, uh, he doesn't actually have a really good first impression, because canonically, he's actually late for his... First day on the job. Right. Uh, and the reason is, is depending on where you read, because he got blind blackout drunk. 
and is driving to the city with a hangover uh, after abruptly breaking up with his girlfriend. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's great. So they all end up at this uh, gas station. Claire's there. Leon's there. Uh, she gets attacked by a zombie. Leon subdues said zombie, gives her a ride in the police car to uh, Raccoon City, where they get to know each other or whatnot. And they're about to get into the city. Like, Leon's like, huh, man, there's, like, abandoned cars and military vehicles. That's really weird. They end up, like, stopping on a road. And then all of a sudden, they just see a, like, semi-truck just bear down on them with mm. a slowly zombifying uh, a truck driver. So they get out of the car just in time for the truck to slam into the police car, make a giant explosion, and separate them. Like, they confirm each other is alive, and then they mm. go in their separate directions. And that's how the game starts. So... I guess for the purposes of this, we're just going to tell both stories at the same time. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm going to inevitably attribute something that technically should only happen to one character to the other. But don't worry about it. We'll get to the end together. Yeah, that, that's the important part. Yeah. The important parts of this story are universal to both. It turns out, yes. So you end up running through the streets of Raccoon City as you see that it's just absolutely trashed and on fire and everyone's zombies are being eaten by zombies and it's absolutely horrible. And the first thing that the player character does is that they're going to go to the police station because that just seems like, that seems like it'd be a hard point and, you know, Leon mm. has to report for his first day of job anyway, so, and, you know, Chris may be there. So they end up going to the Raccoon City Police Department and find that it's been just overrun by zombies. Like, they find one surviving officer, a Lieutenant Marvin Bragman, who's, like, the only surviving person there. He's been bitten by a zombie. He's badly injured. Mm. And it turns out all the other police officers are dead. But apparently there's a secret passageway that's underneath the uh, police station that if they could just find and get in there, it'll allow them to escape and maybe figure out a way to get out of the city. Like, the city's basically lost, essentially. So, like, okay, well, right. maybe we should just leave. Wait, didn't you just get there? Yeah, pretty much. But it's just like, well, maybe this was a bad idea. So during this time, uh, one or the other character, let's just say Claire in this case, Claire mm. runs into a little girl. This little girl is a blonde-haired girl by the name of Sherry Birkin. Now, good old Sherry uh, has unfortunately lost her parents. Uh, They're just lost in the city and, you know, kind of things are going on and no idea what's what's happening. It seems really, really bad. Uh, it gets especially even more bad when all of a sudden, uh, this really weird kind of like blobby-looking monster shows up. Like it's it's walking around and whatnot, mm -hmm. but it seems like to be just really, really wanting to get to Sherry. Uh, and it's this thing called the G One Monster. So you have to like fight it off, and eventually gets wounded enough that it just kind of runs away. And upon that happening, like. Claire and Sherry end up running into the police chief of the Raccoon City Police Department, a man by the name of Brian Irons, who turns out is a real bad person. <laughs> so, uh, Brian ends up kidnapping Sherry because, one, he's a pedophile. Two, uh -huh. okay. Yeah. And two, he realizes that he needs Sherry for important things. That important thing being that she is the daughter of a scientist of Umbrellas. And, it and Brian Irons is on the take. Umbrellas has been paying him off to basically sure. cover up evidence against them after the whole mansion incident and all the zombies. Right. So 
while all that's going on, Leon is like still kind of in the police station and he ends up uh, seeing like just something crash through the ceiling and he's like, huh, wonder what that is. And out of the wreckage emerges this, uh, maybe, maybe the most memorable thing about Resident Evil 2. Mm-hmm. A giant gray man wearing a trench coat <laughs> and a fedora by the name of Mr. X. He's a perfected tyrant. Turns out uh, in Europe, they perfected the tyrants and they are now a viable bioweapon. Why and is he he's... wearing a trench coat? Because why not? <laughs> <laughs> so he is basically there just to cover up everything. And he sees Leon and is like, yep, gonna murder you. Yep. And so basically you spend the entire game getting chased around by him. Uh, in Resident Evil 2, it's done incredibly, incredible. Uh, the Resident Evil 2 remake is done incredibly, incredibly well. Where mm-hmm. he can follow you from room to room. Yeah. Uh, in a way that steals the gimmick of, the, of Resident Evil 3. A little enough. bit, yeah. Because, like, in the original Resident Evil 2, they didn't, the PlayStation didn't have the resources to actually do that. Like, it it couldn't track the entity from room to room, many of which required loading screens. Hmm. Uh, So they they basically used smoke and mirrors to make it seem like you were constantly being chased. Yeah. But the remake, they were like, oh, yeah, he'll just follow you. Yeah, totally. Like Resident Evil Three for the PlayStation finds a way about it, but even right. it still it still doesn't work a hundred percent. But yeah, it's uh, he's a very very effective enemy. Yeah, and once again, easily the most memorable thing about this game. Yeah, to the point that uh, other games would definitely steal that gimmick, like Metroid Fusion. Oh yes, hundred percent. So, so they all are. Uh, let's actually just get back to Claire. So Claire's like kind of like mm-hmm. running around Raccoon City trying to find a way to get her. Well, first she goes and like rescues uh, Sherry from uh, Brian Irons, who it turns out ends up getting murdered by the, the G monster. He basically shows back up, murders Brian. And like, it turns out he's able to like basically plant embryos in people and which will then burst <laughs> out into monsters. Sure. Yeah. Very alien sort of take on this. Uh-huh. Uh, he also ends up infecting Sherry as well. Mm. And so now, now we have to find a cure for Sherry, otherwise she's going to die in a couple of hours. Right. Now, during this time, though, uh, Claire ends up running into Sherry's mom, Annette Birkin. Now, Annette is like, oh, hey, you found my daughter. Oh, thank God. Hey, listen, I'm an Umbrella employee. I was one of the researchers. Thank you for finding my daughter. Oh, that monster that's chasing her around? Uh, that's my husband. Yeah, of course it is. And it's like, what? What? It's like, yeah. It's like, oh, that's why he's attracted to Sherry and is trying to go after. Her. It's like, yeah, pretty much. Like, well, why is he like that? It's like, well, this is probably not explained this part of the game, but we're going to do it right now. <laughs> so it turns out there was a secret underground laboratory underneath Raccoon City that Umbrella was doing a bunch of experiments in. Umbrella has so many secret underground research facilities. They do. It's there's a different one every game. Oh God, there is. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> there's two in Raccoon City alone. Yeah. Probably more. If probably, you... yeah. And so basically, what happened is that they perfected the T virus there, and they were working on a new type of virus strain called the G virus that was going to be even better. Now, good old Doctor Birkin was like, huh. This thing's really dangerous, and if it gets into the wrong hands, it can cause a lot of problems. I should steal and sell it to the highest bidder. <laughs> so that's what he does. Unfortunately, Umbrella finds out about this, and they send in a strike team to basically murder him, mm. which they do. 
but not before he infects himself with the G-Virus and causes him to mutate into this horrific creature that we see now that is still constantly mutating. Uh, it's going to go through, I think, like five or so different mutations throughout the game. Mm. Uh, in and it's in response to damage as well. Basically, he gets damage, he regenerates, and he just regenerates to something worse. Right. It's actually a really good premise for a boss that goes through different phases. It is. It is. And it's something Resident Evil 3 is going to copy. <laughs> so, so all that's happening. The problem is the T-Virus was also there as well. And the uh, <laughs> Special Forces unit basically was a very fire and forget sort of team. Right. They destroyed all the samples. Uh, rats basically ate the samples, escaped. And from there, that's how people in Raccoon City started getting infected with the T-Virus. Because, uh, like... Crows would eat the rats, who mm -hmm. would then turn into zombie crows, and it was a whole thing. Yep. So, yeah, hooray! Good job, Umbrella. You did it. So, everyone realizes, okay, well, we need to cure Sherry. Uh, we need to stop William. And we probably need to shut down this Umbrella Laboratory, too. Yeah. <laughs> While Claire has Sherry to help her out, or I guess help in air quotes, uh, uh -huh. She's, she's a little girl. He yeah, can't really limited judge her. help. It turns out uh, good old Leon has a little bit of help as, of himself. This Asian woman uh, who wears a red dress by the name of Ada Wong. <laughs> Ada's great. Ada's fantastic. She's the worst. She is the worst. So Ada is in town because she's trying to find her brother. And so... Leon is like, yeah, I'll definitely help you find your brother. Also, I got to shut down this laboratory. And Ada's like, I can help you with that. And they're like, handshake. <laughs> and so they're, you know, they eventually get into this lab and are like trying to like fix up things. Uh, when Leon kind of finds out through evidence that he finds that, oh, wait a second. Ada's not who she says she is. Because she's like, oh, yeah, no, I'm part of the FBI trying to find my brother. And... Yeah, I'm also investigating this. this. is how I know everything about this facility. Kind of weird, huh? And Leon's like, I'm a police officer who's a rookie. And I'm good at detectiving. <laughs> Your story doesn't make sense. And she's like, yeah, you're right. Anyone's going to pull a gun on you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a spy here to steal the virus. I work for another bio biopharmaceutical company. <laughs> Funny, huh? Anyways. Mm, yeah, anyways. Anyways, Annette sh shows up again and shoots Ada, who then just, like, falls to the bomb facility, seemingly dead. And, like, Leon's, like, very sad about this. He's like, <laughs> no, you're hot. <laughs> it's literally the only reason. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, uh, to be fair, spoilers, Ada's gonna come back, like, for, like, five different games after this. And mm -hmm. literally the only reason people wanted her back is because she's hot. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> That's the, that is the single redeeming feature that leads to a career in this series for her. And you know what? Good for her, yeah. because she's a great character. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so... Uh, also during this, like, you know, Birkin show, William Birkin shows up again and, like, attacks everybody. Like, Annette, like, does her best to, like, try to stop uh, William, but ends up getting, like, mortally wounded by him. Uh, it turns out that she was also infected with the G-Virus, and she's like, this is actually probably for the best. I don't want to turn into a monster, so... Mm. Take care of Sherry, please. Mm -hmm. So they find a cure for Sherry in the lab and end up curing her. Uh, and they decide they're going to take this tr like underground train and escape Raccoon City and blow up the lab in the process. So they set the self-destruct sequence. They get on the train. They start leaving. William shows up uh, again, now transformed into his G4 form. Uh, 
ends up getting shot a bunch uh gets like thrown off of uh like the train and whatnot uh mutates again into an even more giant grotesque like essentially ball of flesh that chases them <laughs> before being thrown off the train again and blown up by the explosion at the laboratory uh, if you're playing as the other character in t- in the B sequence, uh, the Titan shows up again. Uh, the Titan, the Tyrant shows up again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. X is like now like mutated and whatnot, and you basically kill him like the the first Tyrant in the in Resident in the first Resident Evil game. So after that, you all escape. You end up out in the desert of Raccoon City. At least it looks like a desert, <laughs> and you're like, boy, we I guess we got to kind of go and figure out Umbrella and stop them, huh? Claire, and she's like, yeah, we definitely do. We're gonna do it together, right, Sherry? And Sherry's like, yeah definitely are we are going to be a reoccurring things throughout this game we are gonna be a team i tell capcom decides that we're not gonna be which is about five seconds later (laughs) how about if claire does that and nobody else (laughs) how about yeah, because this game, when it was re-released on the Nintendo 64, would have ending slides added to it, <laughs> where they basically, where it basically is like, oh no, the U.S. military immediately shows up and arrests Leon and and Sherry, and they let Claire go for some reason. Sure. And they all basically decide to part ways and fight Umbrella on their own terms. The end. <laughs> Which for Leon is like not. No. He's gonna <laughs> go to Europe. Yep, he's gonna. What we next week when we talk about Resident Evil Four? Oh, he's oh, gonna. He's gonna have an arc. He is, and it's gonna. He's gonna turn to my one of my favorite characters. Oh, it's gonna be he's great. great. He is so great. So yeah, that's Resident Evil Two. A uh, great game. A uh, very interesting gameplay gimmick with mm-hmm. the, za- the zapping system and whatnot, and the different scenarios. And it's such a Capcom name to call it the zapping system. It's just. What if you mm. were this character in that character's story? Zapping mm. system. Yep. You zap. What if, they took a, what if they took a box of bullets and you couldn't find that box of bullets in the next, in the next scenario? <gasps> Zapping system. Resident Evil 2. Great game. Yeah. So naturally, they got to make a Resident Evil 3. Of course. And they do. They get started on it for the sake of Dreamcast. <laughs> e. Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, we really wanted... Like the team at Capcom was very excited about uh, developing for the Dreamcast, mm-hmm. uh, mostly because they tried to port Resident Evil Two to the Saturn, but it unfortunately was going to be pretty severely compromised. Right. Saturn, not exactly the greatest the three D graphics powerhouse yeah, of the not, era. Not so much. They were a little disappointed by that, and so they wanted to give something for Sega fans. And they're like, "Well, how about we develop for the Dreamcast? It's going to be this more powerful system. We'll be able to continue the story there, and you know that'd be pretty rad." You know, good, good little send-off for Sega fans as well. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this was not going to be the case. And the story behind this is a little muddled. Mm. The story supposedly goes that the team at Capcom was like, well, re- number of Resident Evils, though, that's kind of like a known PlayStation thing. Right. So it only makes sense that the third Resident Evil should be for a PlayStation game. And we're developing this side story... Uh, that's going to take place in Raccoon City. How about we make that Resident Evil 3 and we'll make the Dreamcast sequel a, just a subtitle, Code Veronica. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other, there's other evidence, though, that Sony may have negotiated a deal mm. to have exclusive rights to Resident Evil 3 being on their system. That would track. Like, 
Yeah, and that seems to be possibly the actual truth of the matter. It also could be just that, well, Resident Evil 3 does technically come out before Code Veronica by a couple months. So it could also just be that. Right. Uh, re regardless, the official story appears to be, hey, we wanted to keep Resident Evil numbered Resident Evils on PlayStation systems. Something we are definitely not going to violate with Resident Evil 4 when we put it out Definitely, on definitely not. Exclusively on the GameCube, which also definitely exclusive on the GameCube. Also definitely exclusive on the GameCube. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, only so many GameCubes got got hmm. sold? <laughs> hmm. Now, when we said exclusive... <laughs> you get to keep PN03. <laughs> Oh. We'll get to that next episode. Oh, yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, I can't wait to talk about the Capcom 5. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. So, yeah, they developed a side story uh, that's focused around Jill Valentine and her escape from Raccoon City at the same time that, well, the sort of same time that Resident Evil 2 is going on. It has this weird thing where it takes place a day before and a day after the events of Resident Evil 2. Right. Uh, yeah, it... The main thing this game has going for it is this thing called the Nemesis system. So as we sort of alluded to when we were talking about the Mr. X in Resident Evil 2, uh, the Nemesis system is this whole idea of like, well, you could just leave the room and you would escape the, the tyrant. Mm -hmm. What if if you left the room, it could technically follow you? to Right. That'd be a lot scarier. And that's true. It is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out. Yeah, now he can't follow you into save rooms, which makes it really funny if you run into a save room that has only one exit, as I once <laughs> did when I first played the game, and I was like, uh, uh, I gotta actually leave this at some point, don't I? Yep. <laughs> well, uh, needless to say, it making for a very, very memorable game, and a game that otherwise is a, kind of a step back from Resident Evil 2. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, you only have one playable character. Uh, there's a nice side kind of like side little thing that they have after you beat the game called mercenaries mode mm. where you can play as other characters in like a more arcade setting right but it also does do kind of something similar to resident evil 2 and that does have sort of like a branching decision tree logic except instead of having like you select one character and it affects another character it's you have you get presented with decisions that will actually affect the story going forward right in a ways that end up ultimately not mattering even when do you think they really should matter <laughs> It's hard to do branching narratives. It is. It really, really is. So yeah, this game upon release wasn't exactly the most successful Resident Evil game. Like, it sold mm. well, but critically, it wasn't... Basically, everyone went, okay, this is a good game, but right, uh, you but probably it's... should do something different. Yeah. You guys are but doing once... something different, right? Right? Hopefully. <laughs> Boy, that would be nice. It would be. But yeah, uh, once again, this is my first Resident Evil game, so it does hold a special place in my heart mm -hmm. as we go ahead and talk about the plot of Resident Evil 3. So once again, it takes place a day before and day after uh, Resident Evil 2. So September 27th through September 29th of 1998. And it literally starts with a voiceover of Jill Valentine talking about how the city's under siege and how Umbrella's evil and blah, blah, blah. And it literally starts with a, a wall exploding and her just jumping out of it. <laughs> With an M16 and a get-up. Yeah. Two-top two skirt and for, and for some reason a sweater that's tied around her waist. Listen, they wanted a cover. <laughs> they wanted a poster that would sell this game. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. And to be fair, this is probably Jill's most iconic look. Yeah, I think so. It's also sort of the most 
or I guess I would say more in line with her backstory. Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense with her Resident Evil 1 incarnation. No, it really doesn't. Yeah, here she's much more action-y and much more military in many ways. Yeah. Like, I, I actually didn't say this, but like part of the design philosophy behind this was to make a more action-oriented Resident Evil game. So mm. like you could like turn 180 degrees and there's a dodge move Damn. that mostly works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it, it plays like Resident Evil 2. It's not more action-y. Yeah, it's not no, really it's more not, action-y. No, you can only get so action-y with hand controls. You really can. Um uh, so after you end up uh, escaping from zombies that are chasing you down an alleyway, you end up like into a warehouse. You meet up with this guy named Dario. And, like you waited out for like a day, like literally a day passes now, September twenty eighth, mm-hmm. and like Jill's like, okay, this is boring. Nobody's mm-hmm. coming to rescue us. We need to get out of here. And Dario is like, hell no, I'm gonna lock myself in this crate. And wait till somebody <laughs> rescues me. It's like, well, you have fun in that crate, I guess. So. Jill escapes, and she actually ends up running into a fellow Stars member, uh, Brad Vickers, the helicopter pilot from the previous game. Mm. Uh, they end up making their way to the Raccoon City Police Department. Uh, coincidentally, I believe, actually, I know this answer, uh, before Leon and Claire get there. Right. Uh, this is this is a bit of a plot hole because they actually end up finding Marvin, and right. he's dead. Oh, right. <laughs> Right, that's, this is like when the self-contradictions begin, when the mm-hmm. series starts to contradict itself. Yep, pretty much, pretty much. It so, is also, in with the case of Brad, the start of the trend of anyone with a name in this series has the potential to become important. Mm, yeah, yeah, pretty much, like... Because, like, Brad was just a helicopter pilot yeah, in this he game. Yeah, he was just incidental to you ending the first game. Mm-hmm. But yeah, here, like, he, oh God, I should have looked into his backstory a little bit more. Maybe we'll knock that out in mm-hmm. the next episode. But if I remember correctly, yeah, he actually, in supplemental material, his few hours in in Resident Evil 3 are, if I remember correctly, weirdly, weirdly eventful. Yeah. <laughs> but um, for the purposes of this game, uh, it doesn't quite matter yet. So... You run in, so you get to the police station when all and all of a sudden a ty, uh, a tyrant shows up, but not just any tyrant, a new type of also trench coat wearing, <laughs> but not fedora wearing. This one, correct? A tyrant by the name of the Nemesis. <laughs> so Nemesis is basically what happens if a tyrant ended up getting into an acid bath, mm-hmm. somehow got smarter because of that. <laughs> And then they said, what if we gave it a rocket launcher? Yeah. Like, its skin is melting off. It has weird stitching over its eye and other places that just doesn't make sense. Uh-huh. And it's only able to say one thing. Stars. Oh, it's so cool. Nemesis is so cool. Nemesis is so cool. There's a reason they put him in Marvel vs. Capcom. Yeah. He is, like, the lasting impact of Resident Evil 3. That yeah. and, again, Jill's alternate outfit. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, pretty much. So he immediately murders Brad be- with like tentacle arms, essentially, because mm-hmm. it turns out he has been tasked with finding the members of Stars and murdering them to cover up Umbrella's uh, basically dirty dealings. Now, why they decided to wait a couple months after this and well into an investigation into Umbrella? Uh, eh, you know, it takes time. It takes does. time. Can't rush these so, things. Can't rush these things. So. 
you can fight the nemesis and actually down him. Uh, you get special items if you do that, but uh, he's essentially invincible. So mm-hmm. you run away. You end up, you know, traveling through the uh, uh, police station and whatnot because uh, you want to get to like the communication system and try to like send like a emergency transmission, but uh, ends up like not really quite working out. But you do find another radio transmission from another team that apparently has landed in uh, Raccoon City and is like fighting their way through it. So Jill goes and tries to find him, like, and she ends up running into a member of this team at a diner. And this team is a, this member of this team is a mercenary by the name of Carlos. <laughs> now, Carlos is a sarcastic Latin man, is, you know, <laughs> set up as kind of like the love interest of Jill that they immediately drop about five seconds in. Yeah. It's really great. And, like, Jill immediately doesn't trust him because it turns out he works for the Biohazard Countermeasure Services of Umbrella. Oh. Or the UBCS. <laughs> so naturally, she's like, yeah, I don't trust you. And he's like, why not? It's like, because you work for Umbrella. He's like, what? We're here to help the people. And it's like, what? No, what? you're not. No. So yeah, Nemesis shows up again. They blow up the diner in order to disable him in a cutscene that's really great. And they end up like splitting up because they're like, okay, listen, we have our team. We're at this tram station. We're trying to make our escape because this has gone real badly. You should join up with us. We'll get you out of here. And she's like, rad. So they have to go and get, like, they end up going to the tram. They end up meeting two other people. Nikolai and Mikhail. Uh, Mikhail, I should say. Uh, so Mikhail is the captain of the team, and uh, Nikolai is his subordinate. Uh, they're both uh, former Soviet army members who got recruited by Umbrella. Oh, okay, so they're definitely trustworthy. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. Actually, Mikhail is actually an upstanding guy. He's a great team leader and everyone loves, and he's also injured, so he's gonna die. Yeah, okay. Now, he sends Nikolai, Carlos, and, and Jill out to find different objects to help the tram work so they can escape. And as they go through that, they end up, you end up, like, running into, like, Carlos and Nikolai out there. Nikolai's, like, acting weirdly suspicious mm-hmm. and, like, stealing things. You're like, what's up with that? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyways, you get all the materials, you get on the tram, you start driving off, and then Nemesis attacks the tram. Now, Mikhail, like, basically blows up a grenade to, like, take out the, the nemesis and, you know, save you. But this just kind of derails the train. Oh, okay, yeah. And you end up at this church. Now, the tyrant immediately infects Jill with the T-virus. And, like, Jill's able to, like, knock him out. And, like, this causes, like, the tyrant... Not the tyrant, the uh, nemesis to, like, mutate, like, in, like have, like, even more tentacly arms and whatnot. <laughs> but still is, abs- still is able to, like, well, stop him and, like, whatnot. Mm-hmm. So Carlos drags Jill into the church. Uh, a day passes, and now it's uh, it's the 29th. And Carlos is like, okay, we need to find a cure for the T-virus. Uh, I'm going to go to a nearby hospital, and maybe I can find something there. So Carlos goes there, and he actually runs into another UBCS member uh, who just is kind of hanging out there. Uh, Tyrell is his name. Mm-hmm. And Tyrell's like, oh, hey, there's like a traitor in our team. And Carlos is like, really? There is? And then Nikolai shows up and shoots him. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's up with this? And I, Nikolai's like, I'm not going to explain that to you. Anyways, I'm going to just uh, open up the safe. Oh, no, it's booby-trapped. And an explosion happens, and Nikolai supposedly dies. <laughs> Poor Carlos. <laughs> Things just kind of happen to him. Yeah, yeah, kind of. But he somehow does find a cure for the T-virus there? Oh, okay. Just at a hospital? Yeah, because it turns out Umbrella was using it as a front for their experiments. Okay, yeah, sure. That makes turns sense. Turns out. Yeah. Which is also why Nikolai was there. Okay. Because he wants yeah. to steal stuff. 
So he uh, ends up going back there. Here's Jill. Jill's like, oh, phew, great. Well, we still need to figure out how to get out of here. But, um, you know, maybe if we, like, go to this public park, we could figure out a new route to escape. So Jill Wait, goes there. Umbrella just had a cure for the T-virus? Oh, yeah, funny, huh? Th- they couldn't have just, just used that at any time? This is maybe the most realistic thing in the game, but do you think a large corporation is not going to try to cover things up? Yeah. <laughs> that would have, they would have to admit that they're making a bioware. They're not yeah, going to do true. that. It's easier to just say, I don't know what that is. Yeah, but food, boy, zombies. Better just blow up the city or something. I don't know. So they end up going to this graveyard. They, you fight a giant plant monster, sure. as, as one does. Yeah. Uh, and... You end up escaping into the tunnels there. And it turns out the tunnels lead to a what like waste processing room that is also a waste disposal facility for Umbrella. Uh-huh. And technically also a secret lab for them. Yep. Yep. But this is secret lab number two. So uh in there, you like um you end up of course being attacked by you know the nemesis and Nikolai shows up as well and he's like, Oh hey, how's it going? Uh yeah, I uh, was just sent here to keep an eye on the UBC UCBS team, basically get uh, evidence, destroy evidence about Umbrella, get samples, and then murder them to cover up everything. Just telling you this right now. And uh, yeah, now I'm gonna escape, and y'all are gonna die because guess what? Uh, the U.S. government's gonna shoot uh, a nuclear missile at Raccoon City. They just decided to do that now. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Anyways, bye. <laughs> I'm going to trap you in this waste processing room with the Nemesis. <laughs> so, Nemesis shows up there and gets dumped into a pit of acid, um, uh, seemingly killing him. And so Jill's like, mm. great. Got that done. Fantastic. And you end up meeting up with uh, Carlos again. And depending on the decisions you've made, uh, you'll reach, get to a helipad, or about to get to a helipad, and you'll hear that Nikolai is either there or gets murdered by the nemesis when he shows back up, one or the other. Yeah. Uh, if Nikolai's actually at the helicopter, he'll steal it and leave and escape. Right. Canonically, I'm pretty sure he dies here because he never shows up again. Yeah, so, then he must be dead. If he hasn't yeah. come back, he's dead. Indeed, yeah, by this point. So, yeah, uh, Nikolai's like, hey, I'm going to take all this evidence and leave. Anyways, oh no, the nemesis showed up and killed me. He's now this like weird blobby monster thing. Because it turns out being dunked in acid just made him like regenerate into this crazy thing. Yeah, I, didn't that happen last time? It kind of did, although now it's happening again. Yeah. Oh, on top of that, there's now a self-destruct sequence going on. Of course, so, yeah. There is oh, always a self-destruct sequence going on. Although I guess to be fair, the self-destruct sequence is more 15 minutes until a new kit. Oh yeah, okay, that's fair. Yeah, so a little different, but still, yes, this is a Resident Evil tradition going yeah. forward. So Jill has to kill the kill the nemesis before she can escape, because otherwise they'll probably just get at them while they're trying to take off in, right. in a new helicopter or something. Because they do get radioed that a helicopter's on the way to pick them up. And turns out, though, in this weird junk scrapyard that they're in, there's just a large railgun? Oh, okay. So... Jill activates the railgun and just shoots the nemesis and, like, messes it up. Doesn't quite kill it, though. Mm-hmm. So Jill just shoot, like, grabs a magnum, walks up to him, and is like, you want to see some stars? <laughs> <laughs> and then Rad. shoots him a... Yeah, it's really great. Shoots it a bunch of times and kills it permanently. 
So Carlos and Jill make their way up to the helipad and then a helicopter lands and it's none other than Barry Burton. He's like, hey, how's it going? Get in. Great. Fly off. <laughs> and they fly away just as the city gets nuked. So eventually, like, they escape to Mexico and Carlos is like, they have, Carlos and Jill have a drink and they're like, well, I guess we better go our separate ways and fight Umbrella. He's like, yep. And by separate ways, Carlos was like, actually, I'm going to go to South America and just uh, never show up ever again. Okay. See you later. Yeah, fair. So, yeah, that is the end of Resident Evil 3. So I feel like for, in order to end this podcast episode, I should like follow up with what is the aftermath of the U.S. government nuking a uh-huh. mid-sized American town. Yeah. So turns out that's bad. President has to resign. Mm. And a bunch of investigations start happening uh, towards Umbrella. Uh, basically, they are more or less forcibly dissolved. Uh, this leads to a, a series of lawsuits that Umbrella files against the United States that last for five years that are called the Raccoon Trials. <laughs> that uh, basically end with um, more or less uh, the U.S. government's involvement being completely covered up uh, and Umbrella being implicated for every crime they've ever did, ever. Mm. And eventually just being completely dissolved, as we'll learn in the intro to Resident Evil 4. Rather unceremoniously, I might add. Yeah. Okay, so that should just, like, solve all the problems. You know, you think so. But as we'll see in next episode, when we get into Resident Evil 4, we'll find out that, no, it turns out (laughs) that it isn't just a virus that can turn you into a weird mutating super monster. But you know what's cooler than viruses? What's that? Parasites. Oh, parasites are awesome. Parasites are awesome. Tapeworm, 100%. Yeah. Keeps you skinny. What if the tapeworm was in your head, though? Oh, that'd be rad. That'd be cool. Especially if it has, like, knife arms. Yeah. Yeah, what if the... And not not you had knife arms. What if the worm had knife arms? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man. So good. But, yeah. That's going to be, though, for next time. As we cover probably Resident Evil 4, 5, and 6... And also talk about a little game called Resident Evil Zero, a game that's very unnecessary. Yeah, extremely. Yeah, Alex, how are you feeling? I feel good, man. Resident Evil's great. It's so dumb. It's so dumb. It's 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 a series that goes off the rail so fast that you can't even be like upset. Mm-hmm. It's just like, yeah, this is the series. What do you want? Yeah, right. Like they, there's an earnest seriousness that is at yeah. least through the first three games. That, like, makes it all really work because it's so stupid. It is so insanely stupid. <laughs> like, the twist and turns it just decides to take in the first three games, which are going to be incredibly minor by comparison. Oh, yeah. Literally starting with the fourth game. Yeah. That, um, it, it's just, it lends it, like, it, it's very fun. It's very fun in a popcorn sort of way. Yes. Which, and it's also, and it's all the more fun because this is not what they intended at all. No. They wanted this to be serious. <laughs> no, it's yeah, they wanted like a serious zombie thriller and mm. then they ended up with oh boy, the back half of this series is wild. Oh yes. As we alluded to earlier, we're going to be talking about Wesker's family <laughs> and boy. <laughs> it's going to make no sense. Oh man, when we're going to talk about the founder of of Umbrella, it's going to make even less sense. Oh, it's so good. Oh, it's so good. But yeah, that's going to be for next time. Alex, do you have any final thoughts? I have one I'll say for next time, but Hmm. no. 
Now oh, that's fair. That's fair. My final thought is, I wonder if I should talk about Gun Survivor. And the answer is I probably shouldn't. Yeah, but at the same time... Yeah, I'm still debating whether or not we're going to get into all the weird offshoots like Resident Evil Outbreak. Mm, yeah. And Gun Survivor and Chronicles. And uh, there's so much weird side content in this. Oh, uh, what is... The two third-person multiplayer cover shooters... And what about Revelations, the games that are spinoffs but might as well be core games? Yeah, no, we are going to talk about those, unfortunately. <laughs> like, this is, there's a, there is a real chance this could be a four-parter, <laughs> which is scary to me. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, yeah, we're going to be talking about one. Oh, okay, I got one. Things. I got one. Probably Resident Evil's greatest contribution to pop culture is the seminal play PS2 game uh run like hell i'm not familiar with that game oh man oh you should look up run like hell specifically you should look up run like hell's uh music video by let's see uh it had a breaking benjamin song with it which one was it crap i can't remember hmm. huh so either way this sounds like something i need to yeah take no look absolutely look up run like hell um it's basically like survival horror on a space station uh it's like the thing crossed with uh alien crossed with breaking benjamin well uh <laughs> you see that broke me a bit because at first i thought did they just name dino crisis 3 something else no 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 no, no it's not dino crisis 3 which oh man i forgot to even mention dino crisis Mm-hmm. Part of part of Capcom's make more Resident Evil, make it with dinosaurs. Yes. Oh god, Dino Crisis. Cool. Dino Crisis is so cool. I would love. I would honestly love a Dino Crisis three remake that wasn't bad. Mm, yeah. No. Me too. Me too. Actually, <laughs> dinosaurs on a space station is like the greatest premise for a video game ever. It turns out it's really good. Uh. But yeah, I think that's gonna do it for us today. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We'll be back, of course, with part two next week. And if you want to see more episodes like this, or I guess more accurately, listen to more episodes like this, you should go to ftp.podme.com or search for Fallen Through Plot Holes or FTP on your podcast service of choice. Alex, thanks again for joining me. Thank you. And take care, everybody.